Coming up next on Security Now, it's me, Jason Howell, filling in for Leo Laporte this week. But you've come for Steve Gibson, and he is here to deliver. He talks all about Facebook's major data leak and what's going on there. Uh, It happened a couple of years ago, but now all that data is out. You were warned. Also, a threat to Call of Duty cheaters, uh, the cover-up at Ubiquity, and just how much do these devices that we have in our pockets, how much are they sharing our data? Well, Steve has all the numbers to share with you next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 813, recorded Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. A spy in our pocket. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Veeam Backup and Replication V11. V11 has over 200 new features and enhancements in a four-in-one solution, combining backups, replicas, and more under one reliable solution. Eliminate data loss and ransomware with Veeam Backup and Replication V11 with a free unlimited 30-day trial. Just go to vee.am slash security now and find out why Veeam is simple, flexible, and reliable. And by IT Pro TV. Expand the skills of your IT team and get them the up-to-date certificates they need. Visit itpro.tv slash security now for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription. Use code SN30 at checkout. And by Bandwidth, a cloud-native carrier with a global network offering SIP trunking, toll-free, E911 and messaging services. Centralize telecom services and successfully migrate communications to the cloud with the telecom power behind the majority of Gartner's UCAAS and CCAAS Magic Quadrant leaders. Learn more at bandwidth.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we talk about the week's biggest security news, and we have just the guy to do it. I'm Jason Howell. I'm not the guy. I'm filling in for Leo Laporte, who is out enjoying time away from Twit uh, for a change because he's been here like the last year solid because of the pandemic and everything. So I'm super happy to sit in for Leo. But the guy I'm talking about is Steve Gibson. He's the guy you really tune in for. How are you doing, Steve? Hey, Jason, great to be with you again uh, yeah. for uh, your fill-in week. And yes, we, we, right. we know from the things that Leo has shared publicly that, eh, you know, he lives to travel. He's found a yeah. travel mate that he really enjoys and, you know, and he's been stuck in COVID land, you know, like going stir crazy. So As we all uh, have. And, yeah. and he was saying, I heard him say the other day that he's off to I don't know, Mexico or something in October. I don't remember where it was. Yeah, he's, he's got going, a bigger plan, a bigger yeah, trip so planned later. A little brief one, Lucky. and we'll have him back. But uh, anyway, uh, this is episode 813 for the 6th of April. Uh, I titled it A Spy in Our Pocket. Um, there's some new research out of some security guys uh, in Dublin, Ireland, um, who went to the trouble of they'd done some research that was sort of like this previously but they expanded their look they've got they they've got the technology to to watch the cellular communications of both in, in their case they looked at the top two you know mobile phone uh families iOS and Android 
and looked at just how chatty they were. And it's, you know, it's a good thing that hard drives are as cheap as they are because given the install base of these drives, I, I, I've got the numbers and the notes, but, you know, they're, they're spooling terabytes of data an hour across mm. their entire install base of devices. But we'll end up talking about that. We got a bunch of interesting stuff by popular demand. I, I can't tell you how many of our listeners may, wanted to make sure I had heard about this. We've got the big cover-up at Ubiquity. Um, uh, I'll be talking about that a little bit later and, and why all of our listeners were saying, hey, Steve, did you know about this? Uh, we're also going to look at the consequences of the personal data of 533-plus million Facebook users just a few days ago appearing on the net for free. Um, and also, happily, how to tell if you might be represented there. Uh, we're going to look at another water treatment plant break-in uh, that had a very different outcome than the one in early February in Florida. Also, we look at uh, um, new moves by Google to further lock down Android against abuses of its original permissive by design API services. You know, they wanted it to be the alternative. It's going to be open. Everybody's on the same side. Uh, like, well, not so much. So we've seen a succession of, of tightenings that they've had to do, and we're going to talk about another one today. Um, we also are going to look at, because all of the tech press was just all over this story, uh, the new threat to Call of Duty cheaters. And also another set of serious vulnerabilities in QNAP NAS devices, which I try not to talk about because there's so many of them, sort of like ransomware. But anyway, we have to because QNAP is just bad. Um, then, after sharing one catchy tweet that as a, as a coder I really appreciated, we'll wrap up by talking about the, the research from Ireland into uh, you know, the fact that we really do have spies that we carry around in our pockets and uh, just what's being spied on. Oh, and we have a terrific picture of the week. So uh, I think another great podcast for our listeners. Absolutely. And uh, let's just get this out on the record right now. You didn't fill this uh, rundown with Android stories because I'm on today. This is just that the way is the true. news it's chips the, fail. It's, the, it's, you know, the... The powers that one they're inscrutable somehow. Mm. Mr. Android is here on an Android-heavy <laughs> episode of Security Now. I lucked out right on. Well, we've got a whole lot of great stuff to talk about. Thank you, Steve, for that. Let's uh, kick things off by taking a break, first of all, and um, then we can get into the picture of the week and everything that follows. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Veeam. Veeam is the leader in backup solutions that deliver cloud data management through a single platform. That's so that you can monetize, backup, uh, accelerate your hybrid cloud, secure your data. You can do that all with Veeam's solutions. They are simple to install, simple to run. They're flexible enough to fit into any environment, and they're always reliable. That's everything you need right there. The new Veeam backup and replication V11 eliminates data loss and ransomware while helping you save 20 times on your long-term archive retention costs. The 4-in-1 solution combines backup, 
replication, storage snapshots, and now continuous data protection under a single platform that's delivering faster and more flexible data protection, as well as recovery and retention options. V11 unlocks unprecedented resiliency for any size business, offering over 200 new features and enhancements. Uh, Just a couple of the top ones that they offer. Continuous data protection. So that's solving the problem of meeting both internal and external SLAs, uh, which can be, you know, pretty expensive for IT leaders. The cost of the technology, its complexity, it often requires personnel training and time to build proficiency. Well, Veeam helps eliminate downtime and minimizes data loss for your tier one VMware uh, workloads. Uh, It has a built-in CDP and you're going to achieve immediate recoveries to the latest state or, you know, your desired point in time, if you so choose. Uh, Your data also stays safe. Ransomware stays out. Veeam V11 helps you secure and recover your backup data uh, with the confidence that you need for its entire life cycle. 95% of Veeam customers experience little to no financial impact at all due to ransomware attacks. So you can basically stop ransomware in its tracks and ensure backup compliance and safeguard your recoverability with native immutability for your backups as well. 20 times less cost uh, for long-term retention with immutability. So large portion requires uh, management across performance capacity, and archive storage. Veeam offers intelligent data lifecycle management for backup copies, uh, and you can reduce the cost of long-term data archival and retention and achieve end-to-end backup lifecycle management with Veeam capacity and archive tiers. Veeam powered backend as a service and disaster recovery as a service, which means 91% of IT organizations, you know, they've increased their reliance on cloud services post-pandemic. And Veeam partners with a global network of cloud and managed service providers in more than 180 countries to architect, deliver, and optimize the backend as a service and disaster recovery as a service uh, that's powered by their cloud-ready data protection capabilities. And Azure Backup and Recovery, Azure Native Backup and Recovery, that, that's all now built in to the very same platform you use for virtual and physical data protection in V11. So you can unify backup, recovery, and management of all data into one common control plane. Veeam Backup and Replication actually eliminates these complexities and breaks down the barriers to rapid cloud adoption. With more than 400,000 customers worldwide, including Puma, Welch's, and Deloitte, Veeam was named a leader in the 2020 Gartner Magic Quadrant for the fourth time uh, for providing backup that goes beyond legacy platforms to provide reliable backup, monitoring, analytics, automation, and orchestration. That's a lot right there. So you should check it out. Eliminate data loss and ransomware with Veeam Backup and Replication V11 with a free, unlimited 30-day trial. All you have to do is go to Veeam, that's V-E-E dot A-M slash security now and find out why Veeam is simple, flexible, and reliable and why it's going to work for you. That's V.AM slash security now. And we thank Veeam for their support of this show. All right, Steve, let's uh, let's get to this pick right here. I know I I know I've seen this at the playground, but it takes on new meaning here. <laughs> well, I just got a kick out of it. I, I don't but somewhere on Twitter. I think someone sent it to me. Um, 
it for those who are not looking at video, um, it shows a, a park with some you know kid friendly jungle Jimmy sort of things in the background, and a one of those tube slides where was like made of like real industrial tubing that a, a kid would get in you know like walk, climb up the ladder at, at the high end get in and then slide down the inside and come shooting out of the of the uh, end down like hmm. like to hit a nicely sawdusted uh covered ground anyway this shows that the that the end the output end is it's, it's covered over it's there, there's a bolted piece of of um, plywood uh, completely closing the exit, and it's someone has written "slide closed" on there, and uh, of course, and and this this was titled "A Back End Fix for Front End Issues," which I got a kick out, of course, from a computer science standpoint. You are we're hoping that the top of the slide, which is out of the picture, we can't see it. Similarly has a big piece of closed uh, plywood bolted across it, it because <laughs> otherwise you'd be in trouble. You know, yeah. kid would <laughs> would get in the front end, slide down, hit the, the, the back and be like, and then, you know, mommy would be hearing some screaming about, you know, ah, you know, you have to try to climb back up the tube, I guess. And worse, if you have a pile up down there at the bottom. So, yes, indeed. anyway, we're assuming <laughs> that the slide people were conscientious and have cl- have blocked both openings, the front end and the back end. So uh, but, I certainly hope so. But Although does, looking closely at this the question. Slide, yeah, it really does. We don't know for sure based on the picture, but looking closely at this slide, I see down at the bottom there's a little notch. So at least if you get locked in there, you're not going to run out of air. <laughs> you know. um, and, you know, really, if you wanted to close the slide, it occurs to me that just closing the top would do the job, right? Because yeah. If you can't get in at the top, there's there's no slide to be had. So although although I've, I I will say I've seen kids my kids many times climb That's up true. through the bottom. So you That's know you true. probably got to close it on both if you really want to keep them out. As I had a childhood <laughs> we will not go into in any detail. So um, okay, the big ubiquity cover up, um, the, the most tweeted to me issue in quite a while. Our longtime listeners know that I've been a fan of the Ubiquiti Edge Router X, uh, which is an amazingly affordable five-port Ethernet router. I think it was like $49 um, for, you know, or, or like max of $49 at the time on Amazon. And the thing that drew me to it was that it's five interface ports were actually individual NICs. Actually, you know, network interface controllers. It wasn't a router hooked like a, a, a one port WAN and then four ports of LAN where they were actually just a digital switch. So that, for example, that, you know, they were they were all related to each other. These were individual NICs, which meant they could each have their own subnet to create a truly segmented network on the LAN side. And as I've often preached, this is the only way that is network segmentation. And yeah, you can potentially use a VLAN, but it's, a, I mean, you know, 
it's a little more tricky to do that. So this is the way to create a secure environment on today's LAN. With many of our IoT devices, immediately upon hooking them up, phoning home to Chinese cloud services, um, there can be no true security. If those devices are allowed to sit on the same network as the families or small businesses LAN, you're just you're sooner or later we're going to be talking about this on the podcast. So IoT devices must be given their own isolated network. Um, and at the time, the Ubiquiti was the only cost-effective solution for doing that. Today, you know. A feature of more modern consumer Wi-Fi routers is to have one or sometimes two guest channels, which support explicit inter-network isolation. Um, sometimes when I'm unable to reach my Sonos speakers from my iPad, it's because they're on the IoT Wi-Fi and my iPad is on the, you know, the real Wi-Fi, the, the, the inter secure device Wi-Fi, and they can't see each other, which is what you want. Um, so uh, since we so often talked about ubiquity, it should be no surprise that many of our listeners have made sure that I knew of the mess that has recently erupted over there. Um, it was fresh last week. Um, I got some early indications on Tuesday morning, but there was still some, I mean, I quickly took a look at it. Some things were still unknown. Brian Krebs, who was in, much involved with this, was still sort of working out the details. So I, I decided just to hold off. Now we know much more. It appears clear that Ubiquity has been proactively covering up the extreme customer-affecting severity of a data breach that put, like, probably all many of their customers' networks at significant risk of unauthorized access. Brian Krebs has cited an internal and unnamed whistleblower from within Ubiquity. So, and you know, and Brian is very careful. If if Brian says this, he has vetted the crap out of it. I mean, he's, I, I would absolutely believe what, what Brian is posting on his site, um, well, KrebsOnSecurity.com. So in January, Ubiquity seriously downplayed what it said was, quote, unauthorized access to certain of our information technology systems hosted by a third-party cloud provider, unquote. Okay, so while that was literally correct, it was also quite vague. Um, the notice said that while there was no evidence the intruders accessed user data, the company couldn't rule out the possibility that they obtained users' names, email addresses, cryptographically hashed passwords, addresses, and phone numbers. Ubiquity recommended at the time that users should change their passwords and enable two-factor authentication. So, at this point... That's, you know, standard, generic, post-breach boilerplate. But last Tuesday's report from Brian was able to flesh this out by citing 
that security professional within Ubiquity who helped the company respond to the two-month-long breach, which it turns out began in December of 2020. Brian's inside source reported that the breach was much worse than Ubiquity had disclosed publicly, thus my term cover-up, um, and that executives were minimizing the severity to protect the company's stock price. <laughs> so, you know, no surprise there. And to make matters worse, the breach follows Ubiquity's, Ubiquity's push, if not well, it is now, it's become an outright requirement for cloud-based accounts for users to set up and administer the devices running their newer firmware versions. An article on Ubiquity's site says that during the initial setup of, for example, a Unify Dream Machine, which is a popular router and home gateway appliance, users will be prompted to log into their cloud-based account or, if they don't already have one, to create an account. Then I'll just note, this is similar to my annoyance with uh, some versions. Apparently not all, though, because I've managed to bypass it. But Windows 10 is now like there there had been a way to just say no i don't do not want to log into microsoft in order to you know to to create an account on my windows 10 machine i want to just do it offline and you have to now jump through hoops last time i i did that anyway so the ubiquities page states you'll use this username and password to log in get this log in locally to the Unify network controller hosted on the UDM, the UDM's management settings UI, or via the Unify network portal for remote access. So, so, I mean, somewhere misguided though this was, they thought, oh, you know, everything is cloud. We want cloud. Our users want cloud. They're wrong there. But, you know... So even to talk to the thing sitting next to you with blinking lights that you could see, you log into the cloud and then, you know, they reach back to it. It's like, oh, this is a recipe for disaster. So these changes had not gone unremarked upon. Ubiquity's customers are decidedly unhappy, complaining about the cloud login requirement and the risk it inherently poses to the security of their devices. Any of our listeners would understand that this is not a good idea. I mean, okay, in some use cases, yes, but not as a blanket requirement where you can't configure the device that, you know, whose cord you keep tripping over without logging into some cloud in, you know, China. Thank you. So, um, as I noted previously, according to Brian's inside contact, uh, and he calls this guy Adam just for convenience. <laughs> so we don't know his name. So we'll call him Adam. Uh, after all, Adam was the start of all this. Uh, the data that was accessed, Adam alleges, was much more extensive and sensitive than Ubiquity portrayed. So I'll paraphrase a bit for brevity uh, from what Brian wrote. He said, in reality, Adam said the attackers had gained admin access. Okay. <laughs> the attackers had gained admin access to Ubiquity's servers 
within Amazon's cloud service. Okay, so that's that third-party cloud provider that they alluded to back in January. Turns out it's Amazon AWS, which secures the underlying server hardware and software, but still requires the cloud tenant, meaning the ubiquity, the user of AWS services, the cloud tenant, to secure access to any data stored there, which apparently they were a little lacking in. They were able to, they, the attackers, were able to get cryptographic secrets for single sign-on cookies and remote access, full source code control contents, and signing keys exfiltration. In other words, yeah, full admin access rights. Adam says the attackers had access to privileged credentials that were previously stored in the LastPass account of a ubiquity IT employee. So, okay, they were, it was secure there. Oh, let's put it in the cloud. Anyway, and gained, as a consequence, root admin access to all ubiquity AWS accounts, including all S3 data buckets, all application logs, all, all databases, all user database credentials, and secrets required to forge single sign-on cookies. In other words, the, the, this entire ubiquity cloud infrastructure was compromised, and ubiquity had previously forced all of at least their newer users who were upgrading firmware, even of older, uh, older devices, to switch to the new and better cloud solution. So this would allow... Adam was explaining the intruders to remotely authenticate to countless ubiquity cloud-based devices around the world, all those owned by Ubiquity's customers. According to its website, Ubiquity has shipped more than 85 million devices that play a key role in networking infrastructure in over 200 countries and territory territories worldwide, all which, or many of which at least, are now vulnerable. Any have been, that have been updated to use Ubiquity's now mandatory cloud facility were vulnerable to remote takeover. And even after all this, Ubiquity continues spewing the corporate line. They said, quote, As we informed on January 11th, we were the victim of a cybersecurity incident that it, uh, yeah, that involved unauthorized access to our IT systems. Given the reporting by Brian Krebs, there is newfound interest <laughs> and attention in this matter, and we would like to provide our community with more information. You know, by not doing so, uh, they said at the outset. Please note that nothing has changed with respect to our analysis of customer data and the security of our products since our notification on January 11th. In response to this incident, we leveraged external incident response experts ooh, to conduct a thorough investigation to ensure the attacker was locked out of our systems. Yes, the barn door has been securely closed and locked. 
There's nothing in the barn, but boy, is our barn secure. Um, you know, after they were rummaging around and took everything for two months. These experts, they continue, identified no evidence that customer information was accessed or even targeted. Okay. The attacker who unsuccessfully attempted to extort the company by threatening to release, right, that information that apparently wasn't stolen in the first place. Okay, I'm sorry. To <laughs> By threatening to release stolen source code and specific IT credentials, never claimed to have accessed any customer information. Though having it all. This, along with other evidence, is why we believe what we want. To, no, I'm sorry. We believe that customer data was not the target of or otherwise accessed in connection with the incident. Uh, at this point, we have well-developed evidence that the perpetrator is an individual with intricate knowledge of our cloud infrastructure. As we are cooperating with law enforcement in an ongoing investigation, we cannot comment further. All this said, as a precaution, we still encourage you to change your password if you have not already done so, including on any website where you use the same user ID or password. We also encourage you to enable two-factor authentication, maybe you should use three, uh, on your Ubiquity accounts if you have not already done so. So, okay, our takeaway for the podcast is that Ubiquity's skeptical customers were 100% correct to object to upgrades of their system's firmware, which offered them no alternative other than to manage their own local devices through an online cloud service. That's insane. Uh, and this meant that all of these devices were now vulnerable to remote access compromise, though they had never been before this, you know, cloud centralization. Um, it was clearly wrongheaded from the start. Anyone using these cloud-attached Ubiquity devices should obviously have changed their passwords at the first inkling of this. And certainly, I agree with the advice, use two-factor authentication uh, if you can't get three, uh, if you haven't already done so. And given that intruders into Ubiquity's network had access to single sign-on cookies and secrets enabling remote access, including signing keys. It would also be a good idea, annoying though it is, to delete any access profiles associated with any of those devices. Make sure the device is using the latest firmware and then recreate profiles under brand new credentials. And of course, as always, remote access should always be disabled unless it's truly needed. Um, there, we're going to be running across many things during this podcast where where stuff is being done just because it can be. And, you know, that's not security. That's not secure. So anyway, that's the story on Ubiquity. And yes, I, I'm up to speed and I'm certainly disappointed in them. Um, the good news is there are now 
better, more modern, much more consumer-friendly alternatives for doing things like setting up sequestered and segmented IoT networks. Most IoT things are Wi-Fi anyway. So the you know what we talked about back then was getting you know an old pokey T-base ten or one hundred. Uh, router or you know set up as an access point and plugging it into one of the ubiquity routers ports so you could you could create a sequestered and segmented wi-fi that you could you know all your plugs and your light bulbs and your thermostats and things could be connected to just because you really just don't want those things on the same lan as stuff you really care about which you know is everything not iot so we have, we have Facebooks and we have a count 533,313,128 user whoopsie. <laughs> we talked a lot about this Facebook breach back when it happened it was 2 years ago in 2019. And now the data that was taken during that intrusion has all just been released onto the dark web for free. You don't have to pay anything. Um, this includes the full username. I mean, the, the, the full names, Facebook, you know, real world names, Facebook IDs, mobile phone numbers, physical locations, email addresses, genders, occupations, city, country, marital status, account creation date, and other profile details, which were which in this massive database are broken down by country, with over at least 32 million records belonging to users in the U.S. alone, 11 million in the U.K., 6 million users in India, and so forth. So uh, when I saw this, I thought, you know, you got to love it. That Facebook has a position there titled Director of Strategic Response Communications. And you can imagine the conversation. Uh, Hi, what do you do? Well, my name is Liz Bourgeois. It actually is. And I'm the Director of Strategic Response Communications for Facebook. And the person says, wow. So when the you-know-what hits the fan, you're the person who gets quoted in the media while managing to never say anything meaningful. And Liz responds, yes, that's a perfect job description. So in this case, Liz said, quote, this is old data that was previously reported on in 2019. We found and fixed this issue in August of 2019. Oh, okay. Well, so the, the data is old. Then what? That creaky old data must no longer apply, right? People have all changed their names and phone numbers and Facebook IDs. They all moved and changed their genders and so forth. So... We really don't need to worry that the data of 533,313,128 Facebook users from only two years ago 
not so old really, is now being offered for free in bulk on the dark web. Thanks, Liz. Whew. For a while there, this seemed like it might be a big deal. Um, and that was, by the way, a beautifully executed strategic response. Very strategic. That's why, that's why she is the director of strategic oh. response communications. Yes, you want. Put that at the top of your resume for your next position of that same title. Someone named Liz Bourgeois to be in charge of your strategic response. Uh, Okay, so just to remind our listeners, the data is known to have been obtained. We talked about this two years ago, apparently in August, uh, by exploiting a vulnerability in Facebook's ad friend feature, which enabled automated scripts to scrape with abandon... Facebook users' public profiles and associated private phone numbers in bulk. It's true that the leak was fixed. And at the time, I remember being somewhat sympathetic to the complexity of doing what Facebook was doing. The, we got into the deep details of the, of the API, and it was like, oh, okay, this, you know, you could, you could kind of understand how this happened, but at the same time, I remember expressing our worry that Facebook's controls allowed it to happen in the first place. We we need them to do better. We need better from them. Uh, and I suspect that, you know, for Liz, well, she's likely a lost cause. Um, if you're wondering whether you might be affected by this massive Facebook data dump, Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned site has your answer, and it just got upgraded since I wrote this uh, last evening. So, uh, and I have the update. Troy Hunt, and thanks to Simon Zarafa, whose tweet I saw uh, just before the podcast. Troy Hunt has a long tweet thread on Twitter about his recent addition of the leaked Facebook data appearing on the web. I've got a link to the tweet if you're curious, and it's on the screen. Thank you, Jason, or producer, whoever's doing this. Um, The upshot is that the data appears to be not only incomplete, but sparse when it comes to Facebook user email addresses, which is what Troy's Have I Been Pwned site is currently set up to cross-reference. Of the 533 plus million Facebook member records, only two and a half million include an email address. What we really want in this case is a phone number, which is far more highly represented in the data. Troy yesterday indicated that he is exploring the possibility of allowing users to search on their phone numbers. Okay, since then, it happened. Um, He says he says uh, in his most recent posting over on TroyHunt.com, he said the Facebook phone numbers are now searchable in Have I Been Pwned? He said the headline is pretty self-explanatory, so in the interest of time, let me just jump directly into the details of how all this works. There's been huge, he has an italics, interest in this incident. And he said, I've seen near unprecedented traffic to have I been pwned over the last couple of days. Let me do my best to explain how I've approached the phone number search feature, or if you're impatient, and then he has a link. He says, what's changed? And I'll just, I'll just share the top of this. He said, 
I'd never planned to make phone numbers searchable, and indeed, this user voice idea sat there for over five and a half years without action. My position on this was that it didn't make much sense for a bunch of reasons. First, phone numbers appear far less frequently than email addresses. Second, they're much harder to parse out of most data sets. He says, i.e., I can't just regex them out with, you know, regex them out like email addresses can be. And three, they very often don't adhere to a consistent format across breaches and countries of origin. You know, right. <laughs> it's, you know, famously hard to even use a foreign phone number because how many digits, how's it grouped, blah, blah, blah. So he says, plus, when the whole modus operandi of have I been pwned is to literally answer the question, have I been pwned? So long as there are email addresses that can be searched, phone numbers don't add a whole lot of additional value. And then I'll conclude with this. He said, the Facebook data changed all that. There's over 500 million phone numbers, but only a few million email addresses. So greater than 99% of people were getting a miss when they should have gotten a hit. The phone numbers were easy to parse out from mostly well-formatted files. They were also all normalized into a nice, consistent format with a country code. In short, this data set, you know, know, (laughs) it was pre-processed by Facebook, after all, all cleaned up and made searchable. Uh, This data set completely turned, he said, all of my reasons for not doing this on their head. So, anyway, uh, have I been pwned? Dot com. You can now put your phone number, what you had then, what you have now, various phone numbers, and see if you get any hits on that data. So once again, thanks to Troy for this. Yeah, that's good. I haven't been on Facebook in a while, and uh, nothing comes up as uh, as being pwned. So yay, yay. I did it this that's, time. That's this what time. you want. And we know what I want is a little sip of water, Jason. So I'm going to take a – All right. Uh, let's take a break here, and I'm going to wet my whistle. Absolutely. You do that and we'll take a break and we'll thank the sponsor of this episode of Security Now and it is IT Pro TV. You already know how awesome it is to watch tech content and listen to tech content uh, about something that you love, right? Technology. Well, IT Pro TV is that But for IT, it's awesome stuff. Whether you run a business, whether you're looking to be employed, you know that you really you constantly have to stay up to date uh, on all the latest trends in your particular field of expertise. Well, the same goes for IT teams. So you can build your IT team to be ready for any challenge using IT Pro TV. Not only can you get your team the most recent certificates and training in IT, uh, but you can also make sure that they stay on track. There's a whole system built out with IT Pro TV so you can track your team's results, uh, which ultimately means you can prove your ROI uh, of your training spend with the Pro Portal. You can manage your seats, assign and unassign team members, 
and access monthly usage reports as well. And, uh, you know, all sorts of other metrics along there uh, as well. Logins, viewing time, courses viewed, tracks completed and more. So you know exactly how much your team is uh, is learning or how much they're in- ingesting through the content at IT Pro TV. You can easily manage those teams as well, managing subsets of users or teams. Uh, you can provide them with customized assignments, monitoring progress along the way, reporting on usage of the platform. Those assignments can be full courses uh, and or you know possibly individual episodes within courses. You can choose to download data in a convenient CSV uh, format for more advanced reporting needs as well. And you can get advanced reporting. So you'll get immediate insight into your team's viewing patterns, uh, into their progress over any period of time with visual reports. Uh, those are dynamic reports that are actually updated weekly, monthly, and quarterly. And you can sign up for email alerts uh, to be notified when reports are ready. Your team's detailed viewing activity is literally it's at your fingertips in the CSV format again. You just download it for any report type and you've got it. Individuals and teams will have fun while they learn. There's seven studios at IT Pro TV, more than 5,800 hours of engaging video training and fun edutainers. IT Pro TV is the best online IT training platform uh, to keep your employees motivated. And IT Pro TV is focusing on Linux for the month of April, right? It's the beginning of April, so this is kind of Linux month. They're going to be having two Linux-related webinars and a Linux uh, free weekend on April 17th through April 18th. Uh, so make sure and check that out. And if you've been checking out IT Pro TV's podcast, Technado, uh, with Don Pizzette, they're actually celebrating their 200th episode of the podcast on April 22nd. And they're doing it with a live show. They're doing it with giveaways. You really don't want to miss it. You want to be a part of that. If you're interested in learning IT or getting certified for the IT job that you want, you're going to absolutely benefit from IT Pro TV. That's what it's all about. So start or advance your IT career today. All you got to do is go to itpro.tv slash security now. Make sure and use the code SN30 while you're there. Uh, you're going to receive 30% off all consumer subscriptions. That also tells them that you heard about IT Pro TV through Security Now. So super important to do that. That's itpro.tv slash security now. And again, remember to use the code SN30. You'll get that additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. IT Pro TV, it's awesome. Use it to build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey along the way. And we thank IT Pro TV for their continued support of the Twit Network and Security Now. All right. So I didn't, I, you know, I must have missed that there's another water security incident uh, that that suddenly happens. But that's that appears to be what you're going to tell me all about. Yeah. Um, so uh, we never really got any closure on that hack to the water treatment plant yeah. in Oldsmar, Florida. That was the one that, like, whoa, you know, got everybody's attention. Uh, um, and that one was in early February. Um, but uh, it may have put other similar facilities on alert. Um, certainly being second with something very much the same uh, gets a lot more egg on your face because it's like, wait a minute, you know, 
after February, you're saying you guys didn't change your security protocols. You didn't, you know, make sure nothing like this could happen again. Uh, well, we were we we were gonna anyway. Saturday before last, on March 27th, a young 22 year old named Wyatt Trav Travnicek, living in Ellsworth County, Kansas is believed to have, well, pretty well confirmed, but we'll call it belief at this point, to have broken into a protected computer system belonging to the county's Post Rock Rural Water District. For some reason, he used his illegal access to shut down the cleaning and disinfecting processes at the facility. You know, you, you want your water cleaned and disinfected whenever you can get it that way. So turning that off is not good. Uh, the public reports don't specify whether any contamination may have resulted to the water supply, but authorities are not taking this lightly at all. Wyatt was quickly identified and indicted on the serious charges that he had accessed a public water facilities computer system jeopardizing the safety and health of the residents of the local community. So Wyatt has been charged with one count of tampering with a public water system, and which is, I guess, a thing you can be charged with, uh, and one count of reckless damage to a protected computer during unauthorized access, according to the Department of Justice. So Lance uh, Erig the special agent in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency's, you know, our EPA's Criminal Investigation Division located in Kansas, said, quote, by illegally tampering with a public drinking water system, the defendant threatened the safety and health of an entire community. EPA and its law enforcement partners are committed to upholding the laws designed to protect our drinking water systems from harm or threat of harm. And we're all glad for that. He said today's indictment sends a clear message that individuals who intentionally violate these laws will be vigorously prosecuted. So Lance's comments suggest that there might be some embarrassment factor and reaction over no one having been identified and held accountable for the previous very high profile headline making event in Oldsmar, Florida. Wyatt's indictment does not specify whether his attack was successful nor how it was detected. But if Wyatt should be found guilty, he faces <laughs> up to 25 years in federal prison and a, and a total fine of half a million dollars. Uh, the other salient fact here is it turns out Wyatt was not some naive, opportunistic post-teenage hacker. The indictment tells that he was previously employed by the water district and his employment capacity required him to remotely log into the water district's computer system on a regular basis. So he knew what he was doing and how to do it. He quite deliberately shut down the water cleaning and disinfecting process at the facility, which... I don't know, at least in my mind, seems extra creepy and far less prone for sympathy. Um, at the same time, this also suggests that the water officials at that facility also failed 
to properly secure credentials by not proactively removing Wyatt's remote access account after he left. You know, um, you know, they said on, on whatever terms he was no longer an employee there, and he was still able to access the computer remotely. Duh. Bad. So. You know, yeah. They may have not been able to do so conveniently if, for example, maybe everyone was sharing the same credentials. So that was harder than just changing Wyatt's if everybody's had to change. But that's no excuse, of course. In any event, let's hope that word of this spreads and that at least our own domestic hackers learn the lesson that messing around with public utilities is not something that the U.S. Justice Department is going to ever take lightly. I think that seems clear. Yeah, and reasonable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You know, you're a an ex-Waterworks employee who logs in and shuts down cleaning and disinfecting. I mean, okay. come on, why are you, you doing know, this? Enjoy yeah. the enjoy the water in prison, Wyatt. Aww. So um, now here we are, Jason. Android. <laughs> do, do, do. Jason knows a little something about Android. Little something about Android. I uh, Android. <laughs> yes, what you got, Steve? So on the Android platform, apps have always able to detect the presence of specific apps, even collecting a full list of installed apps through the query all packages privilege and what's more apps can be set to receive os notifications when a new app is installed that feature i have to say really has the smell of hey wouldn't it be neat if we let apps be informed when other apps are installed just think of all the cool things you could do with that unfortunately as we frequently see cool things you could do is often quickly turned to the dark side. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or even a computer scientist to observe that this wide-open facility would provide yet another means for fingerprinting devices and profiling their users. And it's not just theoretical. Seven years ago, back in 2014, Twitter, Twitter, began tracking the list of apps installed on users' devices as part of its App Graph initiative with an aim to deliver tailored content. And the digital wallet company, MobiQuick, was also caught collecting information about installed apps in the wake of a data breach that just recently came to light earlier this week. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... A study published by a team of Swiss researchers two years ago in 2019 concluded that, quote, free apps are more likely to query for such information and that third-party libraries are the main requesters of the list of installed apps. The Swiss researchers said that, quote, as users have, on average, 80 apps installed on their phones, most of them being free, there's a high chance of untrusted third parties obtaining the list of installed apps. And a year ago, in March of 2020, another academic study found that 4,214 Google Play apps 
stealthily collected a list of all other installed apps to allow developers and advertisers to build detailed profiles of users. And you can imagine it's like, hey, Google lets us do it, so it must be okay. Uh, you know, Android makes this convenient with two OS function calls, get installed packages and get installed applications, which return a list. So it's like, hey, look, they're all, they're right there. Uh, you know, I'm going to impress my boss by using them and saying, hey, look what we can do now. Well, yeah, if, if we can, why not? Exactly. If the system makes it possible, why not? Nothing That's to stop us. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason we're highlighting this long-running behavior today is because Google is about to clamp down on this cool but overly permissive and abuse-begging facility. I mean, this begs to be abused. Yeah. You know, we don't need to know what else the user has, but if we ask... Android will tell. So why not? You know, as they say, you can ask. So Google's developer program policy, March 31 announcement reads, we're updating the following policies. All new and existing apps will receive a grace period of at least 30 days from March 1st, I'm sorry, March 31st, 2021, unless otherwise stated, to comply with the following changes. Package visibility, effective September 2021. The inventory of installed apps queried from a device are regarded as personal and sensitive user data subject to the personal and sensitive information policy and the following requirements. Apps that have a core purpose to launch, search, or interoperate with other apps on the device may obtain scope-appropriate visibility to other installed apps on the devices outlined below. First, what they describe as broad app visibility. Broad visibility is the capability of an app to have extensive or broad visibility of the installed apps, the packages, on a device. They said for apps targeting API level 30 or later, broad visibility to installed apps via the query all packages permission is restricted to specific use cases where awareness of and or interoperability with any and all apps on the device are required for the app to function. And you can imagine, you know, things like launcher apps that, you know, inherently need access to, you know, to see all the apps that it w would be available to launch would be an example, you know, but, you know, not some puzzle game that is free. It's got no need to see anything else. They said you may not use the query all packages permission if your app can operate with a more targeted scoped package visibility declaration. For example, querying and interacting with specific packages instead of requesting broad visibility. Also, use of alternative methods to approximate the broad visibility level associated with the query all packages permission are also restricted to user-facing core app functionality and interoperability, any apps via this method. They finally said, 
please see Help Center article for allowable use cases for the query all packages permission. Basically, you know, they're really going to lock down on this. And what they're doing with developers is, and I didn't have this in the show notes, but it was in in the broader content that I read, um, indicating that the developers would have some grace period to remove their request for that privilege unless they could demonstrate they uh, they truly needed it. But if it is left in there and they don't pull it out, those apps are going to get pulled from the Google Play Store. Then they also said uh, at the same level as broad app visibility, the other is limited app visibility, where they said limited visibility is when an app minimizes access to data by querying for specific apps using more targeted instead of broad methods. For example, querying for specific apps that satisfy your app's manifest declaration. You may use this method to query for apps in cases where your app has policy-compliant interoperability or management of these apps. And finally, visibility to the inventory of installed apps on a device must be directly related to the core purpose or core functionality that users access within your app. Meaning, you know, the whole app visibility can't be some other thing that the app wants to do that isn't about, you know, solving the maze puzzle. Maze puzzles don't need to know what other apps you have on the machine. So again, it, it's, it's really needs to be focused. So what we're, you know, really seeing is a, you know, a decision being made. This is not okay. Uh, it's truly unfortunate in my opinion that we you know we cannot have nice things <laughs> or at least that a massively widely used and deliberately permissive system with all the original features and benefits of Android is inevitably being slowly whittled down, locked down, and tightened up. You know, I, re- I recall many times hearing Leo so often proclaim that he was using Android explicitly for its deliberately non-Apple freedom and its openness. He loved, you know, the, all the extra stuff he was able to do. And it's clear that Google and their Android engineering designers had their hearts in the right place. They wanted to create, they set out to create a free and open platform for the world to use. But naive users need to be protected from all the things that their their open pocket computer might do that's against their interest and their expectations. You know, this podcast is titled A Spy in Our Pocket due to some new and worrisome research, as I mentioned, from Dublin, Ireland. But there's a much broader sense in which we're all carrying around little spies in our pockets. And and this is one of them. You know, the the idea that apps were saying, yeah, I'd like to have the uh, query all packages permission because I'd like to query all packages. After all, you didn't say I couldn't. So even though I don't need the information, uh, I'd like to have it. You know, who knows? Feels to me like um, when we look at kind of the way the technology world has um, has kind of, you know, uh, continued to expand and grow in the past 10 years, that what once was a very noble 
kind of goal for Google to keep Android this very open platform and to do all of these open things, you know, open in air quotes com- when compared to a more closed platform like iOS. We're just in a different technology world now. We're, we're at a point now where there's a lot more awareness, even among general users and general consumers, about what yeah. it means to have privacy on our data and to yep. protect our data and to protect our security. And uh, I just I, I think that our awareness has shifted to the point to where Google needs to make these changes now, whatever their their intentions were for a feature like this before, as noble as they may be. You're right. Now there are there are actors out there that are happy to take advantage of that. And maybe they were there before. And we were just weren't as aware about it. But now so many more people are aware of this, that it puts pressure on Google to make changes like this. And that's why we're here. That's, well, that's my thoughts. And, you know, just look at the all the brouhaha that was stirred up by the in the early days of COVID by the initiative to do uh, recent proximity via Bluetooth. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. we did a podcast mm-hmm. on it. We looked at the technology. It was beautifully yeah. co-developed by Apple and Google. It didn't matter. Everyone's yeah. like, no, you know, but the fact is, and we'll, we'll see this at the end of the podcast, th- you know, that's nothing, nothing. Compared to what is actually happening on our on all of our phone platforms today, you know the the idea of that you were near some other phone for a while. Well, they they know that now without any Bluetooth, without any proximity tracking, without any permissions, all of that is being sucked up. Um, yep. So you know the the if they made a mistake, and I'm not saying it was a mistake, because of course they had to tell us, but it was just saying. We're going to have this feature to our phones to, you know, for the benefit of the world. No, no. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, we do need. Yeah, it's exactly as you said, Jason. This is not the world that Android was developed in or, 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 or first conceived in. Right. Things have changed a Things lot. Things have changed a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I'm sure that none of our listeners are cheating with Call of Duty. You know, no. nobody nobody listening to this podcast, I know nobody would do that. They would do that. No, now maybe Paul. No, no, not even Paul. <laughs> uh, uh, everywhere I looked in the tech press this past week, I saw mentions of the new malicious game cheats for Activision's Call of Duty Warzone. The idea of infecting gamers through malicious cheats... Uh, you know, it's not new. It's become a long time, persistent and popular means for bad guys sneaking their malicious code into the machines of unsuspecting, though also somewhat less than completely virtuous game players who are willing to cheat to get ahead in the game. Still, malware is malware, and the need to obtain an edge, even if not ethically, is inducing gamers to drop their system's built-in protections. The cheats, that is, the, the, this, the so-called cheats, the, the cheating software systems, instruct gamers to run the, the installation, the cheat install, as an admin and, of course, disable their antivirus. And, you know, that's interesting because the gamer knows they're downloading and attempting to run something that's shady in the first place. 
So to them, it might make sense that they would need to give the installer admin rights and, of course, disable their antivirus system upon which they would otherwise be depending. But uh, in this one case, you know, I I need that cheaty stuff, so let's just let it in. Um, And as we know, while these voluntary circumventions are often needed for a cheat to work, they also then make it easier for malware to survive reboots and go undetected. And what's actually being installed often is remote access trojans, so-called rat malware that, you know, opens up a connection off to Russia or wherever uh, and gives the, the people who perpetrated all this access to those machines. So, and, you know, with all of their guard being down, users won't get warnings of the infection or the software is seeking heightened privileges because they gave the privileges to them to start with. Um, so Activision noted in their report by writing, while this method is rather simplistic, that is, you know, asking <laughs> asking for what you want, um, it is ultimately a social engineering technique that leverages the willingness of its target players who wish to cheat to voluntarily lower their security protections and ignore warnings about running potentially malicious software. Activision also provided a long list of Warzone cheat engine variants that installed malware of all descriptions. And why are there so many? It's being distributed using the increasingly popular affiliate model. Activision's analysis indicated that multiple malware forums are regularly advertising a kit that customizes the fake cheat. The kit makes it easy to create versions of Warzone cheat engines that deliver malicious payloads chosen by the soon-to-be attacker who plans to offer it. The people selling the kit advertise it as an effective way to spread malware and, quote, some nice bait for your first malware project. So that's right, script kitties. You can now, you don't have to understand this. You just set this up and turn it loose. The sellers have even posted YouTube videos that promote the kit and explain how to use it. So turnkey cheatware for a super popular game packaged for repackaging by affiliates. It might not be worth that endless ammo or speed or invincibility. Uh, In any event, while I'm sure that none of ours, as I said, our listeners would stoop so low as to something like this, if anyone knows a hot gamer who might, it could be worth dropping them a word of caution in this case. Um, it, It may not be a free cheat that you're downloading after all. QNAP. Uh, for this podcast, I've been trying, I have successfully, to avoid talking about QNAP. Sort of like I now try to avoid talking endlessly about ransomware. You notice that I didn't so far, and there was a bunch of stuff that happened. You know, some crazy ransomware people uh, set. Uh, the ransom at $40 million for a school district. Like, 
like a school district has $40 million. They can't even afford pencils these days. So anyway, I don't talk about that because it's just, it's, it's a, it's just too much of a target-rich environment. So is QNAP, it turns out. Um, you know, everybody at this point knows ransomware is bad. It exists. You know, what are you going to do? But every indication is that QNAP, the company, is also bad. And they produce things that are bad, meaning insecure and in many cases, insecurable. Yet, they are the number one Chinese supplier of network-attached storage devices. And they hold, by some accounts, about a 69% market share of the network-attached storage NAS market globally. So, when something really bad happens and continues to happen, we have to talk about it. Few things are more important than the security of network-attached storage. After all, it's network, (laughs) and it's attached, and it's storage. Presumably, it's storing things that its users might like to keep secure, and perhaps even confidential. And given that the new attacks are the new attacks that we're seeing on, on networks and corporations are pivot-style, where an attacker first gets into a device on a private network LAN boundary, which forms a bridge between the private LAN and the public Internet, and then pivots to use that as the, the launching pad for attacks into the LAN network to which they now have access. You know, it's not so much that someone's laundry list might become public as that an intruder can now leverage their position on these appliances uh, to, to launch much more devastating and serious intrusions. So what happened this time? Security researchers at Sam Seamless Networks published their report last Wednesday containing news that they had been sitting on for months, as in four months, in an attempt to be responsible. But QNAP was not. Sam's report is titled, New Vulnerabilities Allow Complete Device Takeover. I've, I've edited and shortened it a bit for the podcast, but basically it reads, Sam's security research team is actively looking for vulnerabilities in IoT devices that have, that have yet to be discovered in order to ensure our network security coverage is as accurate and up-to-date as possible. SAM's engine subsequently blocks such vulnerabilities from the first day of their discovery, often prior to the vendor resolving it. And I would say, yeah, if they're blocking on the, on the first day of discovery, they're, they're oftentimes way ahead of any vendors resolving it. <clears throat> they said, Below is a summary of two recent vulnerabilities and their potential impacts that our research team discovered in a specific kind of NAS device made by QNAP. It's standard practice to report the discovered vulnerabilities to the vendor and allow for a 90 to 120 day grace period for them to resolve it prior to notifying the public. As seen in the timeline below, 
we followed the responsible disclosure procedure and immediately reported it to the vendor, especially as the impacts of their exploitation are significant. These vulnerabilities are severe in nature as they allow for full takeover of devices from the network, meaning public Internet, including access to the user's stored data without any prior knowledge. They say we discovered two critical vulnerabilities in QNAP TSS-231's latest firmware version 4.3.61.11, I'm sorry, .1446, which was uh, 9.29 of 2020, so last year, August. The two vulnerabilities, first, web server allows a remote attacker with access to the web server running on default port 8080 to execute arbitrary shell commands without prior knowledge of the web credentials. Whoops. And their DLNA server allows a remote attacker with access to the DLNA server running on default port 22, I'm sorry, 8200 to create arbitrary file data on any non-existing location without any prior knowledge or credentials. It can also be elevated to execute arbitrary commands on the remote NAS as well. So, yeah, their complete device takeover titling is no exaggeration. They said these may affect other models and firmware versions as well. And we know how likely that is because most of these use, you know, a common base of firmware that they then spread across devices with different port configurations and capacities and so forth. And here it comes. They wrote, we reported both vulnerabilities to QNAP with a four-month grace period to fix them. Unfortunately, as of the publishing of this article, the vulnerabilities have not yet been fixed. So after 120 days, nothing. They said, due to the seriousness of the vulnerabilities, and here I salute these guys, this, is, this has got to be the new protocol. They said, we decided not to disclose, even after four months, the full details yet, as we believe this could cause major harm to tens of thousands of QNAP devices exposed to the Internet. Okay, so then under their technical details, which are brief because, as they said, they're not disclosing, they lay out the scenario. And note that even now, they are continuing to be super responsible. Vulnerability number one, RCE, remote code execution vulnerability, affects any QNAP device exposed to the Internet. They wrote this vulnerability resides in the NAS web server running on port 8080. Previous RCE attacks, remote code execution attacks, on QNAP NAS models relied on web pages which do not require prior authentication and run slash trigger code on the server side. We've therefore inspected some CGI files which implement such pages and fuzzed a few of the more relevant ones. Most of the CGI files that are available through the web server reside at, and they give the path name, during the inspection, 
We fuzzed the web server with customized HTTP requests to different CGI pages with focus on those that do not require prior authentication. We've been able to generate an interesting scenario which triggers remote code execution indirectly. In other words, triggers some behavior in other processes. Um, And that's all they're saying about it in the hopes that QNAP will awaken from their long QNAP and get this fixed. Um, They said under process for solving vulnerability, they said the vendor can fix a vulnerability by adding input sanitizations to some core processes and library APIs, but has not but has not been fixed as of this writing. You know, and they, of course, disclosed it all, said, here's what it is. Here's how you do it. You know, this is horrible. Fix it. So October 12, 2020, full disclosure reported to QNAP security team. Um, nine, or 11 days later, October 23rd, sent another email to QNAP security team. Um, now we're at October 31st, Halloween. Automatic reply from QNAP support with a ticket number. Okay, so that took, what, 19 days uh, just to get an automatic reply with a ticket number. January 26th, sent a notification to QNAP about end of grace period, which is planned to end on February 12th. On the 26th, reply from QNAP. Oh, my God, same day. QNAP help desk. The problem is confirmed, but still in progress. Okay, now we're up to February 12th. Grace period has elapsed. They still wait. March 20, March 31st. So they gave them from February 12th another six weeks. Initial blog post published. That's this. Still not disclosing details. Just like, please fix this, you idiots. Vulnerability number two, arbitrary file write vulnerability. Um, As we know, this is in the DLNA server uh, listening on public port 8200. They said the DLNA DLNA server is implemented as the process of my UPnP media server and handles UPnP requests on port 8200. (laughs) What? Could possibly go wrong with that. Let's hand, let's put UPnP on the public internet. They said we discovered the vulnerability during investigation of the processes. I bet they did, and communicated and communication both externally and internally. They wrote we've been able to elevate that vulnerability to remote code execution on the remote NAS as well. So. Across the public internet, same they have a shorter uh, disclosure timeline, but same basic idea. So, hopefully, this public embarrassment may finally work to get QNAP's long overdue attention. You know, we could hope. You know, uh, no good would come from Sam's more full disclosure, given the nature of attacks. I'd argue that there would never be any reason for them to disclose. Uh, But if they don't convincingly threaten to do so, it's quite clear that these problems are just going to sit there. 
uh, and QNAP's irresponsible behavior will continue. So the only way to motivate them is to give them time, then to embarrass them. Uh, it's hard to imagine any good coming from going further. As I started out saying, I've been avoiding talking about QNAP. Things keep going by, and I just think, oh, okay, but, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but, uh, you know, I've already let many similar stories go uncovered. And so please, everyone, take this to heart for your own benefit when you're choosing a NAS supplier. Let's reduce the market share of these people. Uh, and if you already have QNAP devices, find some use for it inside your network. Remove it from the public Internet. I don't think there's a safe way to have these things exposed on the Internet. And before we take our final break, one piece of listener feedback that I really got a kick out of. This is from uh, uh, his name is the Realist MF. And he's tweeting at from Max Feinlieb or Lieb, Feinlieb. He said, great remark from my college CS professor. So, of course, computer science professor. Quote, there are two hard problems in computer science. Cache coherence, naming things, and off by one errors. Which is very clever. Because of course that was three things, um, and and it's funny, you know. I mean, I'm a coder. That's what I do, and I completely agree. I've talked about the problem with naming things. Um, names tend to drift over time. You name something for what you think it is, and later it, you don't remember. Uh, for a perfect example, you know, I'm deep into Spinrite 6.1 right now, and I, I saw that decades ago, I was calling something a size. Well, like, you know, drive size. Mm -hmm. Well, in what? In bytes? In sectors? What, you know, it's, it's unclear. So, you know, and I guess my habits have evolved as a coder. I just don't do that anymore. I'm I'm very conscious, you know, dr you know, drive bytes or drive sector size, you know, make it clear. But the other thing you have to be very sure about when you're naming things is that is that that your own use of that thing once it's named doesn't expand. So the the name the original name no longer applies. That's another thing that I've noticed can happen over time, where it's like, wait a minute, that's not what that's doing, you know. Maybe mm -hmm. once, but not now. I you know I changed it, but I didn't change the name. So that, and then of course, famously, off by one errors. Oh my God! I mean, the what I do is I'm I'll, I will very I like resort to paper and pencil uh, when I'm like needing to make sure that I'm like copying a range of bytes from here to there, especially if like the range is overlapping. I put my pointer here. Okay, now is it that many things? Like, like you know, the number of things between the start and the end index, you know, is not the difference between them. You know, it's the difference plus one if you're counting the items 
inclusively. So inclusive versus exclusive and, and so on. Anyway, anyone who's done any serious coding understands that, like, oops, that's where a lot of the bugs are. So anyway, got a big kick out of that bit of Twitter feedback. Thank you very much. Awesome. And Jason, let's take our last break, and then we're going to talk about what the uh, Irish researchers found in their pockets, which is, yeah. I only carry around a phone, so I'm safe. Or are you just glad to see me? Yeah. (laughs) Ha! That's two jokes in the last three minutes on security now. Love it. All right, let's take a break and thank the sponsor, and then we'll get into the main event. But first, this episode of Security Now is brought to you by Bandwidth. Bandwidth provides communication services built for innovative enterprises, SIP and emergency services infused, literally infused with the power of software, uh, create smoother migrations and a more innovation ready platform for your cloud future. So it allows you to centralize SIP with a cloud native carrier. Years of organic growth, mergers, and acquisitions have resulted in a complex tapestry of legacy infrastructure, which only makes getting to these new cloud platforms even more complicated. Centralizing SIP with a trusted partner is a critical first step, and Bandwidth's software-driven approach to SIP empowers enterprises with an unmatched level of control and visibility, uh, which includes so many things, uh, triggered or scheduled porting, real-time number ordering and provisioning, as well as call control features uh, such as failover, call forwarding, and real-time reroutes. Uh, solve for E911 needs. So capturing precise location information at call time, which is critical for your organization. Uh, but converting PRI lines and centralizing SIP can put an organization in jeopardy uh, with accessing accurate location information and maintaining compliance with emergency regulations. Managing evolving regulatory requirements that are changing all the time, multiple offices, a nomadic workers as well, uh, with bandwidths, uh, emergency services built for the modern mobile workforce. And you can protect your enterprise and your employees with precise location information and easily add or change uh, address information as well. And you can access a variety of options, including uh, both static and advanced or dynamic E911 options. Uh, you can work with a network operator who is just easier to do business with. Everyone says they have great support, uh, but we show it through our 98% CSAT score and consistent SLA attainment uh, by their support teams. With Bandwidth's unmatched industry support, every customer receives named implementation specialists who's actually there to usher you through a tailored migration plan. You also get a dedicated team of porting experts so you can have an easy migration experience. A dedicated support personnel uh, and industry experts to manage needs as you scale over time. You get 24-7 network monitoring assurance uh, by Bandwidth's in-house network operations center. You get clear, always available escalation paths and customer-driven prioritization of support tickets. And uh, you, you're there with good company, right? Zoom, Genesis, RingCentral, they all use Bandwidth. Bandwidth is everywhere. Uh, Duet for Microsoft Teams is for those enterprises 
or contemplating migrating uh, their telecom to Microsoft Teams. It's the only comprehensive solution for direct routing and Microsoft certified E911 available directly uh, from a carrier. So simplify your Teams migration, save an average of 40% compared to Microsoft calling plans. Now, as the telecom power behind the majority of Gartner's UCAAS and CCAAS Magic Quadrant leaders, Bandwidth is best positioned to help your enterprise centralize telecom services and successfully migrate communications to these cloud platforms. So learn more. Check it out for yourself. See what Bandwidth is doing. Bandwidth.com slash security now. That's Bandwidth.com slash security now. We thank Bandwidth uh, for their continued support of this show. All right, the main event uh, where Steve tells us why carrying around a phone in our pocket might not always be the best thing in the world, although it's kind of hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's kind of what we do now (laughs) and for so long. It's our habit. And that is what I conclude. Uh, But (laughs) the journey is interesting. Um, Yes. This week's podcast owes its title uh, to... Uh, the title of the research paper recently published by Douglas Leith's group at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Um, he's uh, in the School of Computer Science and Statistics there. Uh, and I've, I've mentioned before, I have a fond memory of sort of a fleeting memory of Trinity College from my visit to the Dublin chapter of OWASP. Uh, in September of 2019 to demonstrate Squirrel to them. Lori and I watched the beautiful Trinity campus pass by. We were attempting to figure out how to open the doors of the Metropolitan Transit. Uh, We never did, so we missed our opportunity to walk around, maybe someday. So... Uh, But in any event, Douglas titled his team's research paper Mobile Handset Privacy, Measuring the Data iOS and Android send to Apple and Google. Now, needless to say, neither Apple nor Google are pleased about having a third party poking around into their device's communications. They'd rather that no one did. But we're all familiar with the phrase, keeping them honest, which I think applies here. It's not at all that either of these behemoths are attempting to do anything explicitly nefarious. I would argue that it's more likely the case, and recent history with all forms of computing teaches us, that without adequate supervision, and especially when an entity imagines that no one will ever look, the strong tendency is to collect data less because it's truly needed than because it's there. And today, bandwidth, storage, and computation might as well be free. So slurp it all up just in case, and we'll see whether we might actually have any need for any of it later. Uh, you know, we were just talking about the case of the Android you know, app packages installed. It's like, well, Android offers an API that lets me get a list of all the apps that are installed on the phone along with me. Why not use it? Right, except... Google says, no, no more. You need to prove you need it. In this case, uh, they're not taking their own advice, but we'll get there. So um, I'll also note that one thing these researchers do 
is notice how this information could be used and potentially abused. Not accusing anybody of that, no. But they're seeing what is being collected. Um, So, okay, against that backdrop, their paper's abstract summarizes what their independent analysis found. They said, we investigate what data iOS on an iPhone shares with Apple and what data Google Android on a Pixel phone shares with Google. We find that even when minimally configured and the handset is idle, both iOS and Android share data with Apple and Google on average every four and a half minutes. The phone IMEI, the hardware serial number, the SIM card serial number, and IMSI, handset phone number, etc., are shared with Apple and Google. Both iOS and Android transmit telemetry, despite the user explicitly opting out of this. When a SIM is inserted, both iOS and Android send details to Apple and Google. iOS sends the MAC addresses of all nearby devices and other handsets and the network gateway to Apple, together with their GPS location. Users have to opt out of this, and currently there are few, if any, realistic options for preventing this data sharing. Again, okay, they're not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with doing this, but someone needs to ask why. Why are they collecting this data? What's being done with it? Certainly, as technologists, we can readily envision many things that we would not like to have done with all this information. So, if Apple and Google are not doing any of those worrisome things, what are they doing? And if they're not doing, and, and if they're doing nothing with any of that information, then why is it being collected? Certainly, some of that is truly essential to the, as we know, the baseband operation of any cellular radio system. We know that the the nature of cellular service requires an ongoing back and forth dialogue with nearby cell towers. You know, even when you're not using your phone, you can see how many bars of reception you have, right? That's all going on in the background. But none of that should involve any data above the level of cellular connection maintenance. Or if it does, Documentation and disclosure should be available, yet none is. Thus, research is required. The researchers organized their presentation very nicely in layers of successive detail, with each layer going down to provide more specifics. So I want to share just their top level of detail, which is all we need to fill in the relevant facts for our purposes. You know, and for what it's worth, I've got a link to the PDF here in the show notes. And I mean, it shows you the detailed protocol, back and forth, handshaking, nitty gritty. So it's all there. Um, I've lightly edited their presentation for better delivery through this podcast, and I've included a link to their full research paper. So, again, anybody who wants to know everything can. They wrote at their top level, they wrote, in this paper, we investigate the data that mobile handset operating systems share with the mobile OS developer. 
In particular, what data iOS on an iPhone shares with Apple and what data Google's Android on a Pixel phone shares with Google. While the privacy of mobile handsets has been much studied, most of this work has been focused on measurement of the app tracking and advertising ecosystem, and much less attention has been paid to the data sharing by the handset OS with the mobile OS developer. Handset operating systems do not operate in a standalone fashion, but rather operate in conjunction with back-end infrastructure, meaning, you know, maintaining a constant link to the mothership. They said, so for example, handset operating systems check for updates to protect users from exploits and malware, to facilitate running of field trials, for example, to test new features before being rolled out, to provide telemetry, and so forth. Hence, while people are using an iPhone, the iOS operating system shares data with Apple. And when using a Pixel, the operating system shares data with Google, and this is part of each device's normal operation. To allow direct comparisons, we define experiments that can be applied uniformly to the handsets studied that generate reproducible behavior. Both Apple and Google provide services that can be and almost always are used in conjunction with their handsets. For example, Search, Siri, and OK Google, Cloud Storage, iCloud, and Google Drive, Maps and Location Services, Apple Maps and Google Maps, Photo Storage and Analytics, Apple Photo, Google Photos. They said, we endeavor to keep these two aspects separate to focus on the handset operating system in itself, separate from optional services like those. We assume a privacy-conscious but busy non-technical user who, when asked, does not select options that share data with Apple and Google, but otherwise leaves handset settings at their default value. In other words, given a choice... No, but they're not going to go dig in and try to turn everything off. In these tests, we evaluate the data shared. One, on first startup following a factory reset. So first startup, absolutely clean phone. Two, when a SIM is inserted or removed. Three, when a handset lies idle. Four, when the screen settings is viewed, I'm, I'm sorry, when the settings screen is viewed. Five, when location is enabled and disabled. And six, when the user logs in to the pre-installed app store. We note that these tests can be partly automated and used for handset operating system privacy benchmarking that tracks changes in behavior over time as new software versions are released. They said the following table summarizes the main data that the handsets send to Apple and Google. And there's a then a multi-column chart with two lines, Apple iOS on the top line, Google Android on the second line. And pretty much everything is the same, although Google does not have location checked where Apple does. 
nor location nor local IP address, which is interesting, not being collected, whereas it is on iOS. And then device Wi-Fi MAC address not sent by Apple, apparently is by Google, and nearby Wi-Fi MAC addresses not being sent by Android uh, is being sent by the iPhone. So otherwise, you know, uh, IMEI, hardware serial number, both of them, SIMs, both of them, phone numbers, that kind of stuff, you know, basic underlying cellular technology you can imagine needing to be sent. And they said this data is sent even when a user is not logged in. And they said, excuse me, indeed, even if they have never logged in. In addition to the data listed in this table, iOS shares with Apple the handset's Bluetooth unique chip ID, the secure element ID, which is associated with the secure element used for Apple Pay and context, contactless payment. And as we know, you know, the secure enclave is like everything. And the Wi-Fi Mac addresses of nearby devices. In other words, of other devices in a household of the home gateway. And of course, we know that Wi-Fi is Ethernet. And Ethernet is uses IP packets contained in Ethernet packets and that the the Ethernet system uses MAC addresses uh, in, in order to address the packets on the Ethernet. So you're getting a huge amount of information. They said, when a handset's location setting is enabled, these MAC addresses are also tagged with their GPS location. And it takes only one device to tag the home gateway MAC address with its GPS location, and thereafter the location of any other devices reporting that MAC address to Apple is thus revealed, right, by social graphing, connectivity graphing. Also, note that sharing of these Wi-Fi MAC addresses allows linking of devices using the same network in the same household, same office, same shop, cafe, whatever. And so the construction of a social graph over time and place. Both iOS and Google Android transmit telemetry, despite the user explicitly opting out of this. However, Google collects a notably larger volume of handset data than Apple. During the first 10 minutes of startup, the Pixel handset sends around a megabyte of data to Google compared with the iPhone sending around 42K of data to Apple. When the handsets are sitting idle, the Pixel sends roughly a megabyte of data to Google every 12 hours compared to the iPhone sending 52K to Apple. Google collects, they conclude, around 20 times more handset data than Apple. Not clear how relevant that is. You'd have to look at the the data in detail to see whether you care. Um, And uh, you just had on the on the uh, screen and also uh, in the notes are two charts showing a very, like at startup for Android, a a very steep upward climb and then it levels out. Whereas 
uh, that's at startup, whereas Apple pretty much stays at a low per. uh, And then Idle, similarly, Android is just sending data out. I mean, like lots of data, more or less continuously over the course of uh, idle time, whereas Apple is you know continues at a lower per. At the same time, I'm unhappy with what, with what we know of some of what Apple is sending. That just seems really unnecessary. So they said, in 2020, it is estimated that the U.S. that in the U.S. there are 113 million. So that's last year, 113 million iPhone users and 129 million Android users. Assuming all of the Android users have Google Play services enabled, then scaling up our measurements suggests that in the U.S. alone, Apple collects around 5.8 gigabytes of handset data every 12 hours, while Google collects around 1.3 terabytes of handset data in the same period of time. When the handset is idle, the average time between iOS connections to Apple is 264 seconds, while Android connects to Google on average every 255 seconds. So that's about comparable. In other words, both operating systems connect to their back-end servers on average every four and a half minutes, even when the handset is not being used. So yes, Jason, that handset that may or may not be in your pocket, mine, which is sitting over on a charger, but is otherwise in my pocket or on a charger, we're not doing anything. And every four and a half minutes, it's connecting back to the mothership and you know sending a bunch of stuff that is clearly not necessary for them to send. And at, I guess the point of t- showing us how this accumulates, you know, 1.3 terabytes of handset data for Android in aggregate every 12 hours, 5.8 gigabyte for iOS. Um, why? Are they keeping it? Are they storing it? Are they processing it? Are they parsing it? What are they doing? Um, and again, this is not cellular layer tower connections. This is connections back to Apple and Google. They said with both iOS and Android, inserting a SIM into the handset generates connections that share the SIM details with Apple or Google. Okay, fine. Similarly, browsing the handset settings screen generates multiple network connections to Apple or Google, which is interesting. I guess that's telemetry, right? Like, oh, we want to collect all this data on, you know, what the user's looking at. Okay. A number of the pre-installed apps and services are also observed to make network connections, despite never having been opened or used. In particular, they wrote, on iOS, these include Siri, Safari, and iCloud. And on Android, these include the YouTube app, Chrome, Google Docs, Safety Hub, Google Messaging, the clock, (laughs) and the Google search bar. Maybe the clock want to make sure it's set correctly. Um, the collection of so much data, they write, by Apple and Google raises at least two major concerns. First, this device data can be fairly re- can be fairly readily linked to other data sources. For example, once a user logs in 
as they must to use the pre-installed app store, then this device data gets linked to their personal details, name, email, credit card, etc. Okay, that's obvious. And so potentially to other devices owned by the user. Oh, that's true. That's not so obvious. Shopping purchases, web browsing history, and so on. This is not merely a hypothetical concern, since both Apple and Google operate payment services, supply popular web browsers, and benefit commercially from advertising. Second, every time a handset connects with a back-end server, it necessarily reveals the handset's IP address, which is a rough proxy for location. The high frequency of network connections made by both iOS and Android on average every four and a half minutes, therefore potentially allow tracking by Apple and Google of device location over time. With regard to mitigations, of course, users also have the option of choosing to use handsets running mobile OSs other than iOS and Android. Uh, what, BlackBerry? They said, mm -hmm. for example, e slash OS Android. I'm sure you know what that is, Jason. I have no idea. They said, but if they choose to use an iPhone, then they appear to have no options to prevent the data sharing that we observe. They are, well, of course, a, fire a firewall, if you were to configure it correctly, but if you're cellular, then no. Um, uh, they're unable to opt. Oh, uh, but if they choose to use an iPhone, then they appear to have no options to prevent the data sharing that we observe. They are unable to opt out. If they choose to use a Pixel phone, then it is possible to start up the handset with the network connection disabled to prevent data sharing, then to disable the various Google components, especially Google Play services, Google Play Store, and the YouTube app, before enabling connection to the Internet. In our tests, this prevented the vast majority of the data sharing with Google, although, of course, it means that any subsequent phone apps must be installed via an alternative store and cannot depend upon Google Play services. They said, we note that many popular apps are observed to complain if Google Play services is disabled. However, Further testing across a wider range of handsets and configurations is needed to confirm the viability of this potential mitigation. When Google Play services and or Google Play Store are used, this mitigation is not feasible and the data sharing with Google that we observe appears to be unavoidable. So they conclude this top layer with ethical disclosure. The mobile iOSs studied here are deployed and in active use. Measurements of Google Play services backend traffic were previously disclosed by our group, but the present study is broader in scope. We informed Apple and Google of our findings and delayed publication to allow them time to respond. To date, Apple have responded only with silence. He said, we sent three emails to Apple's director of user privacy who declined even to acknowledge receipt of an email. I guess Apple doesn't have one of those uh, emergency response coordinator people that Facebook has. Anyway, uh, and they said, we also posted an information request at the Apple Privacy Inquiries contact page. 
apple.com slash privacy slash contact. But we have had no response. Google responded with a number of, I mean, these are not bozo security researchers. I mean, this is honest. This is true, honest research being conducted by a, a useful group who've done things before. Anyway, Google responded with a number of comments and clarifications, which we have incorporated into this report. They also say that they intend to publish public documentation on the telemetry data that they collect. And, and I'll mention, I didn't, it's not in here, but there, there is also a Google disputing the 20-factor greater than iOS claim that these guys found. They, they, Google didn't like that. I'm um, sure. <laughs> and they finished with, um, yeah, they finished with a key consideration is what mitigations are possible and on what time scale can they be deployed? It seems likely that any changes to Apple iOS or Google's Android, even if they were agreed upon, will take a considerable time to deploy while keeping handset users in the dark for a long, open-ended period, which seems wrong. So my take on this is that, as we said at the top, Jason, the mitigation of this data collection, as they described, is largely impractical. You know, yeah. no one's going to go through all those hoops and jumps and so forth. And the only way to truly avoid it is to choose not to use a mobile handset. And who's going to do that in this day and age? These devices have become our science fiction, globally connected, super powerful pocket computers. I mean, they're amazing. Um, but they're also inextricably tethered to their mothers. And there's no breaking that bond. We know that all of the privacy downside the researchers painted for us is completely feasible. We don't know what's being done with the data. Why is Apple sending back all the back addresses of the other devices that it sniffs in our environment? That just seems gratuitously unnecessary. Uh, are Apple and Google actually performing all of that linking to build sophisticated social graphs or device proximity connection histories, um, you know, at a low level that's inaccessible to us, you know, they certainly could be. Sharing our phone's IMEI and SIM serial number seems benign and likely necessary to provide the services we need. But there's really no way to characterize the aggregation and forwarding of every MAC address within the phone's reach on an ongoing active basis as anything less than surveillance. Apple may boast, and they certainly do, and use it as a selling factor, that they are unable to see inside a locked phone. But they certainly have the ability to tell law enforcement everything that iPhone has has seen everyone it's been near to, what the proximity patterns are, its its location history through time. And that's a pretty serious encroachment into every iPhone user's privacy. You know, I, I won't be giving up my phone, and I'm sure that very few will. No one, probably. Uh, but it might behoove us to keep in mind that we are each carrying a little spy in our pocket. 
Indeed. And you mentioned earlier, uh, or rather the report mentioned um, E slash OS. That's a, it's more like an open source. There's open source versions of Android that are de-Googled entirely. And that's one of, that's one of them basically removes Google entirely. And my, my Google just fired off um, entirely from the phone. So you don't have any of the services. You don't have any of that, those like interlocking pieces. You also don't have the play store. You know, there are ways with Android to basically remove Google from the equation uh, for the most part. And, but I mean, only certain people are going to even be aware to do that or, you know, certain people are even going to care enough to do that. A lot of people, I think, nowadays have just kind of resigned themselves to the fact that, yeah, you know what, like this is just the cost of doing business. The cost of having a smartphone that does all the things I want it to do is that it collects this data. And I'm not even so sure that that data collection is nefarious, but whatever, it's already done. It's too late to to put it back, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I I, I guess that happens. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about recently is the the tech savvy social responsibility to protect those who cannot protect themselves mm, and yeah, so yeah. you know for example web web tracking we talk about web browser tracking well all the techies know about web browser tracking mm-hmm. most users don't so you know as techies don't we have an obligation to to you know to make the world safer for everybody even if they don't have all the details about how this happens. And, you know, I, I think there, there's, a, there, there's a, a useful case to be made for the fact that, yeah, uh, this should be fixed. Yeah. And yeah. if nothing else, Apple should tell us. Tell us why you're connect, collecting all this. You're doing it behind our backs. There's no disclosure of this. What are you doing with it? And, you know, I, I would argue if we knew, then that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah, well, it would certainly be fine for for some people. You know, it'd be yeah. that would be enough. To be like, oh, well, better. it would be better. Apple, yeah, yeah, Apple's got a tight uh, tight collaboration of all of their devices working together. This is just a component of that. This is what enables it. Great, that's one of the benefits that I see in the Apple ecosystem, and I'm okay with it. But yeah, other people, it's like any of that collection whatsoever, it's not okay. Um, that's part of the big challenge too, right? There's just so many varying. Uh, degrees of of uh, comfort level with people and their data right now. Uh, yeah. the, the big companies have to kind of guess what is the sweet spot, and they have to keep themselves in business too. So you know, I don't know what the right I'm, answer is. I'm glad <laughs> for the research and the disclosure because, as I yeah. said, yeah. there's a tendency to to for engineers especially. Well, no one will know what we're doing, so you know, why not? You know. We got lots of bandwidth. Right. We got lots of storage. We got, you know, maybe we'll be able to use this someday. Maybe we'll do something. So let's, yeah. why not? Well, okay. Being called on the carpet for the, the, the data collection you're doing is a why not. Because here's Apple all jumping around selling privacy, right? I mean, Tim Cook makes a huge deal of it. Well, okay. Uh, except what about this? Oh, mm-hmm. well. You know, mm-hmm. so you yeah. know, if they're not using it, they should shut it off. Yeah. And if they are yeah. using it, then what for? 
Yeah, and what you just said there, uh, for for whatever reason, I I hate that thought of like, we're collecting the data because we can, not because we have any use for it now, but we might have use for it later. I feel like that's right. that's a Pandora's box that you open up, and that leads to potentially very bad things down the line. Um, so absolutely right exactly. to scrutinize. Exactly. Indeed. Good stuff, Steve. Um, appreciate all that you do and keeping us all informed on all of this. Everybody who wants to follow what Steve is doing even closer can go to grc.com. Everything that Steve's up to can be found over there. Of course, Spinrite, uh, which we didn't talk about today, but it's an awesome hard drive recovery and maintenance tool. You can get your copy there. Uh, information about Squirrel, uh, audio and video of this show found at grc.com. Also, transcripts of this show can be found over there. You've got a lot going on at grc.com, and everybody should <laughs> check it out. So please do. If you want to uh, hit our site for this show, pretty easy to find, twit.tv slash sn for security now. Uh, we host audio and video uh, versions of this show, ways to subscribe to the podcast, jump out to YouTube if you like. It's all there. Uh, we do record this show. Well, normally Leo records it. Today I am uh, with Steve, but we record every Tuesday starting at 1.30 uh, p.m. Pacific, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 21.30 UTC. And uh, you can check it live if you like, twit.tv slash live. We record. We've got an active chat uh, chat audience who has been participating throughout this entire show uh, behind the scenes as well. But we've reached the end of this episode, Steve. Thank you so much for uh, letting me uh, join you on today's episode. Appreciate it, man. Great to have you, Jason. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time Leo wanders off somewhere. That, that's right. That's right. I will happily fill in for Leo next time. And uh, Leo and Steve, we'll see you next time next week on Security Now. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. If you would like to check out more about tech news, then you should check out Tech News Weekly with me, Micah Sargent, my co-host, Jason Howell, where we interview the people making and breaking the tech news every week. Security.